You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Seasons, greetings, and welcome to the podcast. I've had the privilege to learn some amazing things and have some incredible conversations on this show over the last couple of years. And this holiday season, the Western Science Speaks podcast wanted to revisit a couple of those moments. Today's interview segments encompass a large range of different subjects and different research methods, but they all have a couple things in common. They're all Western professors and researchers, as per usual, They reflect the extraordinary research capabilities present at Western's Faculty of Science, and they all focus on human health in one way or another. Our first interview takes place from Valentine's Day. Amanda Mohring from the Department of Biology studies fruit flies, and I sat down to discuss the underlying indicators that determine whether a female will be receptive to a potential mate. Here we go. What traits appear to be most important when trying to impress a potential mate? Another way to phrase that, the reason why a lot in the animal world, a lot of traits are costly or the ones that females evaluate is because it's hard to cheat on those, right? So if it's the largest males get the most mates, it's hard for a smaller male to pretend that he's a larger male. So it's really hard to cheat on those most of those quality indicators. So how do you know if someone's honestly presenting themselves, this sort of feeds back into that notion of it's hard to relate some of the things we find in animal models back to humans because humans have the ability to consciously alter Mm -hmm. the behavior that otherwise we're somewhat programmed to have, that they can override that. And so we have more complexity in a lot of ways in those mating signals because humans have the ability to cheat on some of these subtle indicators because we use a lot of Mm. more subtle indicators in human mating. And so somebody who's had, say, a lot of bad experiences with not being able to spot a facade early on is probably more likely to be better at judging a mate. Is that fair? Maybe. I don't know if that's fair. It might mean an indication that they aren't very good at judging, right? So it's hard to know. But what it might mean is they might look then for even stronger cues Mm -hmm. than they would otherwise. So they're not going to be satisfied with those sort of lower level cues. They're going to want the ones that are hard to fake, Mm -hmm. right? To convince them that that this is the real deal. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about (coughs) the portion of your work that looks at the genetic and cellular basis for a lot of behavior. I'm interested to know how the receptivity of a female or their aggression to courting a potential mate can evolve over their lifespan. Yeah, so essentially how within a single individual does that change over time? Is it always the same or does it shift? It changes a fair bit, right? So if a female has already mated, she's going to be far less receptive than if she's never mated. And this makes sense in terms of fitness if you have to make offspring you got to have some mating to get there. So females are going to be much more willing to mate when they're virgin than when they've already been mated um, and have fertilization occurring. Um, But also it changes with age. So females, as they age, have a shift in how receptive they are. And there's this really fascinating aspect that even in flies, we see aspects of the social environment influencing their mating. So if a female observes a male mating another female, she's more likely to mate with that male than a random male. So there's some social learning, even in flies, which is really fascinating. It just 
recognizing a face or... Yeah, well, and, and that they've been successful. So essentially it's that if that male was successful with that other female, well, he must be pretty good. I'll take her assessment to flavor my own assessment, right? So it's interesting um, that that's possible even within something as simple as a fruit fly. Is there a chance an element of that might be subconscious? Maybe it's not somebody who you, you know, blatantly saw and you kind of went, oh, that's that person? Oh, you mean, you in, just, you mean in humans? Yeah, you you've maybe don't fully consciously recognize that you know this person, but just kind of sensing it somehow. But if you know that somebody has been desired by many other people, you might then raise them in your evaluation mm. compared to a random person, right? This is often how celebrity works, right? That somebody who's a celebrity automatically looks a little bit more attractive because, well, if everyone else likes them, maybe I should like them too. And so we certainly have a lot of evidence in humans that that, how other people perceive somebody, influences how we also perceive them. Just naturally, our brains go to the idea of a male having to impress a female. How do male Drosophila respond to an aggressive female? Yeah, so one, um, so females are um, sort of unfortunately historically a lot of researchers have viewed females as these passive players that either accept or reject male courtship and of course we've learned more recently that is absolutely not the case and so females have all sorts of rejection responses they'll kick the male's face they'll just run away um, and in some cases they'll be aggressive towards the male so what's interesting is that when females show aggression towards a male his uh, state can really impact how he responds so if he hasn't had successful matings even though she's beating him up, he will continue trying to court and mate with her. Um, if, however, he's had a lot of recent matings, then he'll back off a bit. Um, so there's some, some aspect of that. What's interesting with the males is that if they have tried courting a female for a very long time and continue to get rejected, it actually makes them then less likely to try and court a brand new female. Yeah, he lost so his mojo. He's, he's, he's essentially gotten the message, I am going to have nothing but rejection. I'm just not going to try. Um, so, so we certainly see the males respond to what the female um, gives them as her signal of response to, to accepting him or not really does impact his later behavior. That was Amanda Moring on how female Drosophila evaluate male courtship. Our next interview comes from an episode titled, Nice Guys Finish Last. Or do they? Jeff Wild from the Department of Applied Mathematics studies why certain behaviors evolved to be present in modern day humans. In this clip, we discuss the evolutionary benefits of being nice. You're looking at the evolutionary advantages of seemingly altruistic behavior. What hidden advantages have you hypothesized or been able to uncover? Uh, that's a great question. Um, because at face value, many social behaviors, especially the more selfless ones, seem disadvantageous. And, you know, explaining why these selfless acts, these self selfless behaviors are actually advantageous is important if we want to understand life. You know, think about those, those RNAs I mentioned a, mo uh, a moment ago. Uh, those, those things constituted the first signs of life on Earth, and their success depended on the selfless acts of those among them who acted as enzymes, right? The selflessness would have been open, certainly, to, to selfish behavior of free riders, you know, selfish molecules who spent all their time letting others do the hard work, uh, the hard work associated with, with replication, with propagation of, uh, you know, one generation of molecules to the next. Um, and these, these free riding molecules could have just 
sat, sat back, so to speak, and, and uh, reaped all the benefits. Uh, we're built from teamwork. <laughs> yeah, but but so why didn't these kind of free why, why didn't these free riders really really flourish? You know, why didn't selfishness prevail over selflessness? Why didn't the emergence of life on Earth simply just grind to a halt? Mm-hmm. You know, so like your your question suggests, there must be something in it for these seemingly selfless individuals. Otherwise, you know, why would they why would they persist over time? And my work really endeavors to explain what what it is that's that's uh, that's incentivizing selfless behavior. You know, not just for molecules floating around in some. Uh, molecular soup, um, but also for parents caring for their young, individuals risking death to leave the safety of their birthplace, individuals putting off having offspring of their own, you know, maybe to even help others uh, raise and care for the offspring that they produce. As a 19-year-old, there's this whole digital landscape that people spend more of their waking hours on than they don't, and it's a pseudo-pleasant social media climate where everyone's super nice to each other on the surface all the time behind screens and I'm interested in what your thoughts are on how we interact with one another in that domain and what impact is it going to have on future behaviors? It, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, certainly if these different social media platforms widen our social circles, I think that, that's, that's true. Um, and theory tells us that when our social circles get widened or become wider, that really sets the stage for selfish and possibly antisocial behavior. I've tried to take some of these selfless, selfish ideas and apply them to things like disease evolution, for example. And um, my, my research collaborators and I have, have found that when diseases can't spread very far, they tend to be less virulent. They tend to kill, at least we predict, that they will tend to, to kill their hosts, possibly us, um, at, at reduced rates. As we start spreading disease uh, over broader and broader uh, spatial scales, uh, we predict that they will become more virulent. They'll, they'll kill us or their hosts with, with greater frequency. The, the basic idea being that if you start spreading diseases around, they are less likely to be competing against strains of diseases to whom they're related, to whom they're close related. They're away from their family. Mm-hmm. And when you're away from your family, when you're around individuals uh, whose success you have no genetic stake in, then you're willing to exploit resources, the resources around you at a very high rate. And if those resources are us, mm-hmm. then you know we're in trouble. And I can see parallels here between the predictions that we've we've arrived at for disease evolution is virulent behavior on the part of pathogens and virulent behavior in social media platforms. And as we as we widen the scope of individuals with whom we interact. Um, we have less interest in their in their well-being. Uh, it's harder for people to keep track of our reputations, um, and basically, basically, there's there's less incentive for us uh, us to be kind to one another. I, I mean, I can see, you know, if I look through through social media, uh, if I look at social media, social media through the lens of an evolutionary biologist, I think, you know, some of these measures that 
the news outlets are taking to to have people post comments with their actual identities. The, I, those are are measures, possibly positive measures, things that we could do to work against the the uh, anti-social forces that might otherwise drive us. Mm -hmm. I think the thread between public value and social media has gone much uh, more prominent because I've met people in person. They've seemed low key. They've seemed you know, uh, maybe a quieter person, and then I see them on social media. Oh, they have 15,000 followers. I, I've judged them long. They're, sounds sounds super dark, like a Black Mirror episode, but it's like, oh, they're more valuable than I thought they were. They know more people, they have more opportunities to do stuff because they have all these people following them. That's that's a great that's a great point. I hadn't even thought of that. I mean, keep keep in mind I'm not of the age yeah. where where I would I pay a lot of attention to social media. Yeah. But certainly interacting with high high status individuals, uh, certainly adjusting one's behavior based on on individual social status is, is adaptive. And yeah. That's a, that's a whole different ball of wax. Even if they're totally dull and you know they have that value online and they can give you a platform if they post pictures with you, it's a, it's a whole new world that you have to take account for. Yeah, I gotta get more followers <laughs> on my Twitter feed, or my Twitter account, I guess. <laughs> that Jeff interview is from 2018, and a lot of the themes covered in that short conversation are even more relevant today than they were at the time. It's also clear just how much better my current podcast mic is than the one I was using during that period. Next, we'll go to an interview that was part of our recent Halloween special. We all experience fear, but how well do we really understand it? Lyle Miller is a computational neuroscientist who I invited to come onto the show to reveal how our brain reacts to fear in the immediate short term, as well as the long term, through natural processes such as sleep. This is him explaining how fear carves out a permanent place in the brain. How does the brain offload memories from one structure to another? Yeah, so if you think about um, a scene from your life, right? So imagine you were camping somewhere in the mountains and you had this experience or this memory of waking up. You're seeing the uh, mountains, you're maybe smelling a campfire. We know that the memory footprint of this experience is formed in your hippocampus. So that's where it starts. And then during sleep later, um, it's transferred to the neocortex. So you can think of the hippocampus as this kind of smaller set of neurons that is responsible for forming the memories. And the neocortex is this huge, huge network where uh, all your long-term memories are being stored. That's called the two-stage model of memory consolidation, where you have these uh, memories of experience that happen during your day um, and then through consolidation, they're integrated with old memories without losing or disrupting them. And in, in modern human societies, we're not fighting for survival every day. Dangerous experiences are much more few and far between. So a lot of fear is actually memories of those experiences where we are scared for our life. And so with PTSD, we're talking about an experience so frightening and overwhelming that it lurks in our brain for years. And the connections that trigger that event become too broad. Is it possible to remove that memory to stop the constant encoding of that experience we had? The memories are so enmeshed in the synaptic network of cortex that it's really difficult to, it seems like it's really difficult to remove a specific memory. But 
at the point of encoding. So during sleep in this process of memory consolidation, that's where we think that memories are most, it's most possible to target memories or to modulate memory consolidation as it's uh, happening, as it's going from the hippocampus to the neocortex. Yeah, so what happens while we're sleeping where that process is able to happen so effectively? If we go back to that example of camping um, and you're in the mountains having a visual experience of these trees that, uh, that you're looking at or smelling a campfire as you wake up, we know that the individual pieces of this memory are all stored in different cortical regions all across the brain. And these become active during the process of recalling or remembering. So for example, if you're thinking about a visual scene, your visual cortex, your very early um, visual areas light up when you're having that memory. We needed to kind of understand how this distributed brain network links together all the activity patterns when the memories are transferred from the hippocampus to the neocortex. And so that touches on some work that um, we did while I was at the Salk Institute in California, where we found a specific mechanism for how this might work in the brain. What we were studying was a specific sleep rhythm called sleep spindles. These are 11 to 15 hertz brain rhythms that occur during sleep. And we were studying how they're organized across the cortex. And so during nights with normal sleep, where there weren't any seizures, we studied these rhythms, these sleep spindles. And while people had generally thought previously that there was no real organization to the pattern of these spindles across the brain, specifically what people thought was that they were all synchronized, or that means that the rhythm is going up and down together at all points in the brain at the same time. Using some computational techniques that we developed to analyze kind of movies of activity, we found that the spindles are actually organized in these really beautiful patterns of waves that rotate across the brain. And so it turns out that these waves travel at the speed it takes neurons across distant points in the brain to communicate with each other. So if you're back here in visual cortex, it takes some time to um, communicate to neurons in the frontal cortex. And these waves that are appearing during sleep seem to be able to provide that highway, that link for uh, visual cortex neurons to link up with the frontal cortex neurons. We think that this is a mechanism for how the brain self-organizes its activity to allow communication and linking parts, these different parts of remembered events, so visual, auditory, olfactory parts uh, between these neurons that are spread all across the brain. And so if you had a traumatic experience, that memory of that traumatic experience is kind of locked in or repeated over the course of uh, sleep then in the nights following. And so that turns out to be the critical time at which the memory is really formed and consolidated. That's interesting because say I go to Disney World with my parents and have the best day ever, and I want to have a really vivid memory of that experience, it's probably good to get a, some really good sleep. But with a traumatic memory, you can see why people would turn to alcohol and drugs, even if they're not doing it intentionally, screw up that memory forming process, right? Definitely. Yeah, we know that, we know that those uh, substances significantly impair sleep. And so it can actually, people can be self-treating to disrupt those uh, memory formations. Exactly. As I said before, our current world is much less dangerous than the ones our ancestors evolved in. Uh, we were hunter-gatherers, you know, fighting off tigers and 
traveling long distances, in your opinion, is the development of scary movies or visiting haunted houses uh, a symbol of an itch that we desire to be scratched? I think that so scary movies and haunted houses can be really fun. And so it can be uh, a quite a, like exciting experience, but it can also for some people be actually traumatic. So it points to how different individuals will consolidate an experience very differently. Um, and that has to do with people's predisposition to fear and also how they consolidate the memories or integrated into their experience. Now you said scary movies and haunted houses are fun. They're really not in terms of what the creators of them are trying to do to us. Why would somebody's brain enjoy that? We know that if you have an experience like fear, um, that can involve uh, a fight or flight mechanism and you can actually get adrenaline from that. Mm. And so adrenaline is highly exciting to the um, cortical circuits in, you know, affected by that hormone. So if you have an adrenaline rush, not only do you, you know, have um, increased physiological response, but you actually have components of increased memory consolidation as well. Is PTSD something that only humans are capable of having? So we know that fear is really deeply integrated into the circuits of the brain. The amygdala is really well connected with the uh, hippocampus, which is part of what we call paleocortex or old cortex. These circuits are, you know, important for all uh, mammals. And we know that, for example, mice uh, exhibit fear conditioning really, really well. Is there a point you can look at and go, this is where you get PTSD on a level of how scared you were? Is it a gradient or a continuum or an all or none threshold thing? I think at the individual level, it is an all or none thing. But there's so much variability between everyone's experience that um, it could, that very different experiences could lead to PTSD. I'm interested to know if, if it's more nature or nurture and that if you have a very privileged, easy upbringing, would something less objectively terrifying give you PTSD versus somebody with a very tough uh, graphic upbringing? Are they, do they grow up a little bit tougher in terms of getting PTSD? That's a great question. You know, um, so much of cognitive neuroscience is done in undergraduate student populations and things like that. And so one of the important things that's being discussed in cognitive neuroscience is how do we expand our testing to make more representative samples of the populations in, you know, not only Ontario, but Canada. And uh, that's a question that people are really actively dealing with. So um, I don't think we know the answer to that specifically, but I think that people are starting to really think about it deeply. That interview with Lyle gives you a good idea of how much work the brain puts in to keep us alive. My main takeaway from that Halloween special wasn't that fear is something to be embarrassed of. It's just your brain making sure that you're aware of all the dangers you've come across before in hopes of avoiding them next time. Trying to escape traumatic memories isn't an effective solution to treating them. Embracing and understanding why an event became so memorable to you is. Our final clip of the day is an interview with Dan Lazat and Brent Davis. They had recently created a computational tool that identifies the signs of drug abuse from users on social media websites. 
Here, we talk about how their software works and why it's so important to have data discovery tools that mesh with contemporary forums for discussion. And you're looking solely at mental health here, right? So far. Yeah, um, and mental health and substance abuse in particular, right? Um, so, like, one community that is out there um, that came up from talking to the health units and seeing what might support them is there's still the opioid epidemic going on. I think it's an up to, I think it was 3,000 in 2018 overdoses in Ontario. Uh, I'm not sure on the number, I could have gotten that number wrong, but it's it's been steadily going up. And they're a hard to reach population. Like no one's gonna go on Twitter, like on their work account and be like, hey guys, I'm about to go home and do whatever their drug of choice is. Um, but on Reddit, they have a way to go and talk to each other. And you see some surprising things like safety tips, um, the overdose kits. Um, there's, it's very much not just kind of what you'd expect of people being flippant about it. There's kind of a, an active community yeah. around what they do. Um, and that's where we're getting the, the language they use from to be able to understand what's going on there. Can you give me an example of this language? So what's something that would pop up on your system as a red flag? Um, the one of the big ones is uh, fentanyl. They right. just call it fent. Um, so if you didn't know that, and you're trying to do a keyword search, if you keyword search for fentanyl, it's most of them aren't going to uh, shorten it to fent for you to try and find that. Yeah. I think one of the things that we're providing is a way to use a computer to highlight the words that are most distinctive of the discourse in that subreddit without having to like. Um, read through it all manually. Who is this information for? So you're making, you're kind of making a shortcut for people, right? So that they don't have to like go full method investigation for a year to figure out that fent means fentanyl. So who, who are you supplying this to? This project was really instigated by um, an epidemiologist with Ottawa Public Health, uh, Cam McDermott. He's a great guy, and we were talking about different ways in which AI techniques might be able to help people working in public health, and he really expressed his frustration over how hard it is for folks in working in public health who want to be helping and delivering services to these vulnerable populations to actually get in touch with them. It's really hard. And so that kind of piqued our interest, and so they've always been our kind of number one client, um, not just CAM, but um, public health organizations in general. So they're definitely at the top of our minds. Right, and they've got two major universities there, as well as Algonquin College. I don't know what else is there, but have they used it toward student life there at all yet? No, they haven't, but we are collaborating with um, folks in uh, at Carleton University in the geography department because they're really interested in how does uh, the place where you are interact with this whole thing in terms of, like, what vulnerabilities do you have? What do you have access to? Um, how does it impact what kind of services you can get? So um, we're starting, and, and the folks at Carleton have a lot of expertise in working with populations and really helping them tell their own stories about what their experiences are like, which we really like and it's expertise that we don't have. But working with those social scientists at Carleton, I think is going to give us a way to really um, bring this beyond helping the health units, which would be great to reach out to these folks, but to help the people on social media um, really tell their stories and help them tell the rest of us what they're really going through. Without the veil of anonymity. Yeah. 
The problem I've had is so there's Reddit Western, right? So which is like as bad as narrow as you can really get. Uh, they don't like it when I promote the podcast on their subreddit because <laughs> apparently I don't add to the community. I just plug the podcast. But I imagine for you guys with the Ottawa people, it's probably pretty rare that you find someone who talks about their location being in Ottawa and then kind of being the ideal person for who you're working with. So how are you going to be able to find lots of people in that demographic? Yeah. Um, the, the kind of bewildering part is that there is much more than you would expect. There are people on there that I think just absentmindedly, that they're not thinking that someone's going to come and find this, no one's going to look at this ever. And they do. They say, I'm in Ottawa and I bought this. Uh, not exactly in those terms, but spread out over like 20, 30 posts, you can sometimes find something that explicit. Um, the other part that we're doing is that this is part of where we need the expertise of the geography folks is uh, and for the public health units, they want to look in an area. And like you said, there's subreddits dedicated to areas. Like Western's an area, Ontario has its own subreddit, uh, Canada, London. We've got um, Western and London, Ontario, so yeah, it's yeah. just here. Um, so those are all spots where you can go and for the most part, it's getting usernames out of there, because usually someone doesn't do all of their posting on London, Ontario. Um, but you can get some people that you have a pretty good idea have a tie to London, Ontario by going and getting usernames from there, um, and then you can retrieve their history. And that's where we start to bring in the the machine learning apparatus, really, right. to help so, us out. So they're prominent on Reddit Ottawa Senators or something, and then yeah. you, you, know, you have a pretty big hint there. Yeah, exactly. And that was one of the things we, one of the bunch of things we started thinking about at the beginning of this, like what would be those flags? And it's like Sens fans and maybe government stuff, maybe uh, Ottawa Blues Fest. Like there's, a, you know, there's a lot of things that folks in that region, for example. Right. We're definitely better to yeah. start off with a major city where there's just yeah, more things. I think so. Yeah, I think so. We're, we're not interested in identifying people so we can go to their house or something. No. And I don't think we'd ever be able to do that, which is just as well. But the cool thing about this is that it's a two-way street, social media. So, you know, the health units can reach out to these individuals without exposing them, without having to know exactly where they're at, without having to know their name, even just with things like, did you know we have this program? Did you know uh, safe injection sites are here, here, and here? Even stuff that basic is stuff that they can't target right now because they're not sure who really needs it. So that's that's really the, the the goal of the project in terms of what we hope we can deliver to them. That's the other thing about this project and the thing about social media in general. Like everything is evolving so fast that we're kind of watching it happen in front of us as we develop these techniques, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes and how we have to adapt doing the work. So. This project, in a lot of ways, has been a lot more open-ended, which has been exciting and interesting, but also really challenging, because it's, it's a lot more difficult if you don't have that problem, like, here's your specific problem, mm -hmm. and I'm going to do this, 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 and then I'm going to solve it, and then it's going to pick a treatment for somebody. This has been really different in terms of, it's really tools for exploring the data and um, trying, trying to make use of it when you can't necessarily get that kind of clear goal. Um, so it's been cool to be doing these both of these kinds of things, and we're lucky working in AI to have, you know. Um, you always have to be so careful, doing your best to understand where the data are coming from, how they're being produced, and what they really mean. And whether that's like on Reddit, or it's like uh, electronic health records, 
if you're going to do a really good job, you really need to take the time not just to understand AI methods and stuff, although that's key, but to like really appreciate what that domain of knowledge is and, and you know, how can you really add to that. That wraps up our best of for health research. Today we've learned a lot, from Amanda Moring making it clear that even if you lie to impress someone, there are always going to be natural indicators that show the whole truth. Jeff Wilde taught us that you're not a beta for showing kindness or treating others well. Those traits exist within you for a reason, and they're meant to be shared. Lyle Miller can show you real maps of the brain that crystallize the undeniable nature of fear. Running from it is a losing game. Your brain is emphasizing frightening memories because it cares about your survival. And Dan and Brent demonstrate how social media can be an intimate community for many to share private information. And if we understand this, we can develop tools that help us look out for each other even more. Behind the complicated analytics, formulas, and theories, I found that there's usually a simple, beautiful lesson in most science stories. If you've heard those clips before, I hope you were able to take new things away on a re-listen. And if those interviews were new to you, you can find all of them on the Western U Science Apple and Spotify pages, as well as our science faculty website. I've had an unforgettable time as the host of this podcast over the last few years, and I can't wait to see what we learn next. For now, I'm Henry Stadage signing out. We'll see you in 2021. Happy holidays.